You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number 45 of the Honey Collective. I'm Ben O'Brien, and today... We are joined by two of my favorites, two Meat Eater Originals. I'm talking about Stephen Ranella and Ryan Callahan. And we're in Sonora, Mexico for this podcast. We're hanging out after a good dinner, a few drinks. Of course, Steve doesn't drink, so he didn't have any, but I had a few. Cal had a few. We did a couple of push-ups and cranked out a pretty interesting podcast. Of course, like any late-night podcast might go, this one didn't really have a script we just let it rip but we had a lot to talk about first beers first guns first cars and a bunch of other stuff our love of jim harrison and like i said other stuff which makes this one fun we didn't uh, take her too seriously and i always enjoy talking to and recording with ryan callahan and steven ranella for episode number 45 check it out here comes ryan callahan how many push-ups is that, bud? I'm at 200. 200 for the day? For the day. The 200 Club. The 200 Club? You yep. feel like that's a bit excessive, or are you excited about that? No, because I uh, was like, I should try to be healthy while I'm eating five to six pounds of frijoles a day down here. Mm. And... Um, Kind of wanted a second beer, now I'm kind of regretting it. So I was like, "Well, I'm gonna do 200 push-ups today." How many push-ups per? Hold on, pat- well, hold on, back up. You're trying to lose weight? No, just stay healthy. Oh, what's that to do with drinking beer? Oh, just just extra calories for nothing for the like and the taste of beer. Huh? Yeah. I I mean I'm just trying to be somewhat healthy. I feel like I'm living life on the road. Long and lonesome. listen. I'm all for doing push-ups, man. I just didn't understand uh, the the beer part. Is there a push-ups per beer you feel like you have to do to offset? Well, now I'm at 100 push-ups per beer today. Now that that's a healthy man. That is a like a, 
if my buddy Ronnie did that, <laughs> he'd be like, 1,199. <laughs> Miller Lite. I don't know if you heard me counting. It's a high number. Miller Lite would write him and say, whatever you're doing, please stop. He'd have giant arms. You know, uh, I used to have a girlfriend, um, bless her heart, and her grandmother had drank the same kind of beer her whole life. I think she drank Old Mud. Old Milwaukee? Old Milwaukee? Yeah, it might have been Old Milwaukee. It was one of the swill beers, which I have a theory that they make it all in the same plant. And they just they like do, it all, yeah. they just make it and they switch the labels out throughout the day. Do you have any uh, anything to back that up or is that just a... Just haven't drank at all. Yeah. We Taste test it. Theory. Like when we were in high school, you know, you kept like, you know, those bottles. What do you call those? Remember the big glass bottles? You'd... 40s? Well, that was like 32 ounces in those. Maybe. I drank Yeah, 40s. like, you know, you have a, like a black label an yeah. old mill yeah. half drank under your truck seat <laughs> drank drag it out now and then anyways uh my old girlfriend her grandma drank the same beer her whole life and the, and the family got together and wrote the beer company um a letter about her and they sent her like a big care package with a custom sign thanking her for her service. <laughs> yeah, and then they had her birthday party and unveiled this, all this, and the, 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 and because she had been drinking that beer for, you know, seventy years or whatever the hell it was. And they thanked her yeah. for her service. You know, service to the brand. Uh, way back when, when I was uh, bartending in Missoula, Montana at Red's Bar, um, my <laughs> buddy uh, Two Shanes. I worked with Two Shanes there. Um, and, uh, unbeknownst to the owner of the establishment, we decided that nobody was drinking Olympia. We had the same 12 pack of Olympia in the fridge forever. And so we started selling Olympias for, um, a buck a piece. All the other beers were 250 or 225 at that point. Um, all of a sudden Olympia started selling like you wouldn't believe. And then we started throwing a lime wedge in there, calling them Montana Coronas. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And we just didn't think anything of it, right? And in very short time, we became the number one seller of Olympia beer in all of Western Montana. And the Olympia beer rep came in and gave us like, Olympia tackle boxes, uh, Olympia sweatshirts, all sorts of like yeah. beer swag. So you were like a, an ambassador, like an athlete kind of. Yes, yes, we were we were highly tuned athletes. Um, and uh, what was <laughs> what was funny is nobody really cared about Olympia beer, but all that stuff was so unique because uh, nobody else had it, right? Um, that uh, it was just pretty much immediately pilfered and stolen. But so you're still running an Olympia tackle box? You still running it? I'd, I, would, I would love to have that Olympia tackle box. What's, what, Steve, what's the first beer you ever remember drinking? Man, you know, I don't really remember. I remember my brothers, they were way ahead of the, the game on this. They were making beer. Man, when I you know I must have been in junior high, right? And they were like they were near not nearly old enough to. They were making they were, beer. 
Yeah, they made beer. That's fantastic. And they made this crazy beer. So this would have been in nine, this would have been in the late 80s, way ahead of the game. Um, and they bottled it up. And it kind of like it kind of came about in this way. Like my old man, you know, you know what a white elephant sale is? Yes. So my old man, he helped volunteer at a white at a white elephant sale for the wise, like a like a uh fraternal organization sort of thing that raised money for the Y. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. YFCA, YMCA, all that. And they, they would throw this white elephant sale. So somehow my old man comes into a pop machine. And the pop machine was, we couldn't manipulate the price. It was just sold pop for 35 cents a bottle. So he took us to a bottle plant where they, where they like bottle soda pop. They had like grape, orange, root beer, cola, all this stuff, and reused bottles. So these bottles were like all scratched up and gnarly. But we could buy these things for, for you had to bring the bottles back. So you, you could buy these bottles for like, I can't remember what we paid. We were getting them for 10 cents a piece or something once you oh, brought yeah. the bottle back. And we put them in our own pop machine and plugged our pop machine. And we didn't, we didn't live in a town. We just lived on a lake where like the neighborhood kids would come over and buy our pop. So somehow or another, the bottles, and then also my brothers were making beer, and, um, <laughs> and the beer they would make would get like a quarter inch of the yeast settled on the mm, bottom. Yeast. And just a simple fact of like opening the beer would, if you, it would disturb all that, and it would come up. So you'd have to like very gingerly get that lid off, and you could drink the beer. And like even though it wasn't, you know, we weren't, you know, we weren't supposed to be out drinking, but somehow because they made the beer, my dad didn't. He didn't really regard it as drinking because it was homemade or something. <laughs> so, so everybody that, listening to this, this is a like, perfect argument. It was just like 16. this totally separate. Yeah, it was weird. So they just had we just had beer that they would make, you know. Um, yeah, and we drank. Uh, yeah, Old Mill, you know, it was, was, all was a thing in, in Michigan. Yeah. You people drank Old Mud, and, and um, that was you know everybody drank uh, Mountain Dew for pop. You say pop. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. What do you say? Pop soda? What do you say, Cal? It was it was always pop, pop. Yeah. Uh, you know the original Mountain Dew like slogan, catchphrase. It'll tickle your innards. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Which uh, I always quite enjoyed. There wasn't a lot of drug like w- there wasn't a lot of drug taken. You didn't do us. a lot. Of, you didn't do a lot of drug. No, taking? we didn't do drug taken. I'm sure there was, because it turns out there was plenty of drug taken around uh, my neck of the woods. Yeah. But I was just totally oblivious to it. Yeah, like, there was like there so. was weed around, you know, but like the the like drugs, there weren't as much. I don't think there was as many drugs. And this is in a micro area. In our micro yeah. area, yeah. drug taking, like hard drugs, weren't really prevalent. People drank alcohol. Now I got kid. Like now my buddies that have kids that age, they talk about that like. Weed's a normal thing. Oh, of course it is. Opioids, though, man, now it comes in a pill form. Doctor yep. prescribes. But also, it. like Montana and Michigan are two very heavy drinking states. Like if you look at the statistics nationwide, uh, Montana, Michigan are always very high on the scale of like per capita alcohol consumption. And so to kind of like write it off as like, oh, folks were just drinking, maybe uh, that might be a little. The consumption of drinking may uh, shock 
a lot of folks yeah. in, in my, other areas. Yeah, my my the people my dad hung out with and ice fished with, big drinkers. I remember a guy coming over one time and he came over, he was all drunk. He took one of our hamsters and put it inside his snowsuit. <laughs> and like <laughs> the guy didn't have any clothes on under his snowsuit. I didn't see this shit coming. Oh yeah, man. This started like, the story. I didn't see a hamster in a snowsuit anywhere. Yeah, there. just a lot. Yeah, a lot of just so much. Yeah, you're right, man. Yeah, a lot of booze, man. I don't, why, I don't know why we're even talking about those. Because Tal's doing hundred push-ups for every beer he drinks. Well, uh, I, I like this subject. <laughs> when I was growing up, <clears throat> I was I was kind of on the thing. Like I I was I endeavored to like I would try every drug, you know, like just one time, mm-hmm. like just just I, so you knew, just so I knew what it so was. So you like. could field questions from your children. Yeah, <laughs> what's it like? Well, let me tell you a story. <laughs> it was the second. So I did did a lot of none of the hard stuff, but all the stuff that you know people do when you're a teenager and you're looking to try stuff. Never got I never it never took never took too much, but uh, I had a good time doing it. I remember we got our hands. <laughs> I remember being in high school and getting some no dos and feeling naughty. <laughs> we feel like I need to tell my parents. kids in my school. My, kids in my high school used to drink Robitussin. They call it Tussin. They'd be like, "You Tussin, bro." Yeah, drinking Robitussin out of the bottle. Yeah, dudes I grew up with would huff. Yeah, because he'd go to wood shop. We'd go to wood shop and work on our stuff, and you had to go to your next class. Some people would bring like a little (laughs) ball of wood putty. (laughs) I remember dudes were like just having wood putty in their hand, and they'd just be like cupping it. You know, you're sitting in like social studies or something (laughs) like that. Because we're just rolling out of wood shop, making big wooden mallets or whatever on the lathe. You know, yeah. Guys in my oh. world, they would huff the duster that you can buy. It makes your voice really low. You suck it in, makes you high really quick, and then your voice gets really low, and then you pass out. Oh, no. Goo. Yep. A uh, couple real quick ones. Jim Harrison. Yeah. Yep. Right. Michigan. Michigan. Yeah. Um, and then later in life, uh, Livingston, Montana, dude. Uh, but Harrison got out of life just in time. I think the times would have caught up with him. Oh, like his the, tr- uh, the, the, the 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 women stuff. The women stuff, and please please uh, elaborate on the women stuff for well, those of the folks who aren't aware. Just like the well, you can, well, I, I no go ahead, Cal. I will later, but okay. I, I just I, yeah, I, please do. I mean, I we'll circle I, back to it. I got a uh, buddy of mine gave me this is exactly to your point. A buddy of mine gave me um, the book uh, Really Big Lunch. Yep, like his collected short stories and um and, and some of his unpublished stuff too i believe yeah um came out after he after he passed away but in he wrote in the book he's you know he said uh hey here's here's a guy uh who lives by lived by as few rules that you do like doesn't doesn't follow the mainstream plays by his own rules plays by his own rules and uh, that's what i always say about my brother and his wife he, yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I do think, ha- like, if he was just kind of coming into his own, let's say he's like forty right now, um, he probably wouldn't, wouldn't hit it. He'd probably be hushed right out of the, yeah, the spotlight, you know, because all of his stories are are about drinking yeah. too much and, um, well, it's like old. It's like you know. It's, it's male fantasy stuff. Yeah. And, and this, listen, man, I, I say this with great reverence, right? Jim Harrison changed my life. Like, Jim Harrison helped me become a writer. Really? But, but from reading his stuff 
and then you know he would like, little michigan connection also blur, yeah, yeah. Like, blurred my work and like he was like very influential okay but a, a lot of the stuff that you think is cool when you're younger, you get older and you look at it and it just it stops being cool. Well, it gets, it gets sadder by the year. Yeah, and so this male fantasy stuff, and it really like permeates his work. Um, and I get it, but, it, you know, it's like this older guy, you know, he's divorced or whatever, but, you know, he never ceases to be getting lucky with the, <laughs> with the young ladies, right? It just, I, it's just like one of those things where the, the – uh, like the national conversation is such that when you read it now, things that you used to like, you read it now and you kind of like, you can't, sometimes you can't help but cringe a little bit. But you yeah, have, you know, absolutely. You, reading it when you're coming up, you didn't have a daughter. Like you didn't have kids. Exactly. You didn't have somebody to project that onto. Yeah. You're like, oh, fuck. Yeah, having a daughter changes stuff, man. At uh, Harrison had gout rat real bad and, and this was a, a repeating story in this really big lunch. Uh, and, and this book had me like laughing out loud and, and very envious of certain things and, and just some of the experiences that this guy had. And, and, uh, and I, I kind of like his consistency of like, he, he portrays himself in a way that says he, he's always been the same yeah. and he's been richer than rich and poorer than poor, but he's just, he's never, never changed his, uh, his tune on his own drum. Um, but the doctor's like, you got to quit drinking, like terrible gout, can't even move. He said, well, doc, what do I got to do to balance this out? Cause I'm not going to quit drinking. And, uh, the doctor said, well, you got to, uh, get exercise. And he said, well, how much exercise per bottle of wine? She's like, well, you got to walk for two hours. And so he'd walk six hours a day. <laughs> and so yeah. to your point the man is influential because i was like well i'm gonna have a do 100 push-ups per beer i want to walk it back a little bit man because i don't want to one i don't want to speak ill of the dead two i don't want to 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 say something bad about the master but it is just a thing that i notice now and, and, and i'm i'm sensitive to it for various reasons well, i think one of them having having a daughter maybe yes that but um as a writer, like like, if you just isolate sentences, if you isolate Harrison's sentences, there are, you can pull them out, and he's written thousands of them, of of ones that that you look at like no other man on earth would be able to make that sentence. It's like a it's diagnostic. It's like you could you could pull it out and and put it somewhere out of its context and you'd look and be like, I, I can tell you with 100% certainty who wrote that sentence. And there's not many writers that are like that. That's like, the art like of it. Diagnostic though. quality. Like just these like amazing. Then you hear the guy talk. He doesn't like quite talk like how he writes, but he just had a way to do it. And he did it a lot and was good at it and made people f- where I was from speaking of being from Michigan, man, it made like there was a time we were kind of coming of age when uh, he made us real proud to be from, proud of where we were from, you know, real proud of where we were from. What kind of, you know, it, as a writer, what'd you take from him? One of the things I picked up from Harrison, uh, how unapologetic he was about uh, kind of like his love for the natural world, you know, in his, his, he was disgusted by 
waste and destruction of nature, you know, uh, that you could that you could feel that way, you know, because a lot of people are like, well, feel that way, but they don't want to be called a tree hugger or whatever. But you could feel that way and just and make it like angry. Yeah. You know, because a recurring thing was the character, especially his early stuff, like Brown Dog and all, like some of those early characters. And then, and then my favorite is that his book Wolf, like a false memoir. You know, um, yeah, how pissed those like his characters are like drunks and antiheroes, but they're just outraged by the, the trashing of the landscape. You know, and I remember that. Uh, those years of realizing that that was uh, an okay way to feel, you know, <laughs> and other parts about him too, just that he talked. So he spoke so lovingly in Michigan and there wasn't like people, you know, I mean, Montana, how many, you go to like Wyoming or Montana, like how many people have been writing and singing the praises of those States for forever? Colorado had John Denver. Man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like it's easy Mr. to get sunshine it's on my goddamn shoulders. shoulders. Yeah, John it's easy to get Denver. poetic. There's a lot of states it's easy to get poetic about, but you didn't uh, in Michigan. You didn't, um, you know, you, uh, there wasn't the the you didn't have like the 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 the, the ballads about it. Yeah, I felt uh, his. Michigan writing specifically, like what resonated with me is uh, he held food. He always held food in very high regard, but the Michigan stuff was like, yeah, wife, kids, like in this shack that was going to tumble down shack. Um, and it they were like destitute basically, but he's like, but we had wild duck on the, you know, frying super hot on the stove and then I'd finish it in the oven and I'd have, uh, like currants off the tree and make a sauce and, um, you know, cooking fish and stuff. And it, it was like, all this other stuff doesn't matter as long as you focus on the things that do Yep. type of thing. And, and that really hit home with me. Like I, yeah. you can, as long as you, you just got to have some points of reverence, I think, is is kind of what. Well, as a writer, you really like he it. was able to romanticize things that weren't always romantic. Like you said, it's easy to to look at the Rocky Mountains and sing, but Rocky Mountain High, <laughs> Colorado, and Montana poaches. Do they pay uh, that? Do they pay that guy to do that stuff? <laughs> What about West Virginia? Who, who sang West Virginia? Mountain Mama. That's John Denver. Is that John Denver too? Yeah. Darn he's right. like a damn. He was like a he's loose hit writer for the <laughs> Montana coach uh, Steinbeck. Right, travels with Charlie. Um, Steinbeck sings the praises of Montana, but uh, you know he's not a Montana guy. He's a California guy. Yeah, and, he, he wrote very beautifully about California and. But when he came through Montana, and it's a hunting-specific quote, and Montana just, like, stole it. It's like Steinbeck's ours, right? Because he, he travels through Montana, um, and uh, he happens to be going the length of Montana, which is a long, long distance, um, during hunting season. And he, he, for whatever reason, he comes to the conclusion that he's like, yeah, boy, like, 
folks in Montana, they're, they're doing what they're doing for like a uh, pure reason, basically like how they're going about it just seemed to resonate with him. Yeah. Um, and when I first read that, I was like, yeah, Montana's are the best. Because <laughs> I'm from Montana. <laughs> Fuck me, right? Uh, John, John Steinbeck says so. Have you read Cannery Row? No. No. Is that, is that that's about the uh, wharf down there in yeah, just, Monterey, right? Just misfits and, you know, during, during the Depression, like just misfits living in Monterey Bay. Yeah. Yeah, oh, no, I haven't read it. What's funny about it is even then, so he's writing about the 20s, and he's writing about people poaching abalone, even at that point in time. It's a good-ass book, man. They wound up needing to go out and catch a bunch of bullfrogs. It's a great book, Cannery Row. Can you? That Im- book kind of changed my life a little bit. Imagine the poaching in the, the Depression era. Yeah. Like, can't say I blame them. No, gloves are off, man. Yeah. Anybody would do it. Anybody would do the same thing if you're I'll hungry. Say, if you're hungry, is it poaching if you're hungry? I don't think so. That's a good I guess question. it depends why you're hungry. If you're hungry because just general, because <laughs> you're lazy, because you're general <laughs> derelict, then maybe not. But if you've exhausted all, if you've exhausted all possibilities, um, you if can't go kicking your way through the beer cans in your yard. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> there's a, poach a buck. I, I do feel like there's a point at which. Um, I feel like there's a point at which you could achieve a level of, um, you know, a level of freedom to, to, to feed one's family <laughs> without needing to be cracked down on too hard by the law. I had all kinds of things I want to talk about in this podcast, but I like where we're going. Oh, no, go ahead, man. No, 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 no. <laughs> I like first beer. We, what was your first? We didn't get it, Cal. Is, what's your first beer? Man... Uh... My dad wasn't a drinker growing up, uh, and he he was uh, very, very clear as to what would happen if I were to be caught drinking. But uh, occasionally, like, the only thing in the refrigerator would be a non-alcoholic beer, and I'd come back from uh, tramping around. We lived uh, right off of Rattlesnake Creek uh, in the upper Rattlesnake, which is um, quite a bit different. Uh, than uh, when I quite a bit different now than than it was when I was growing up because there there just wasn't the amount of development. You know how many trees I've trimmed up that creek? Oh, I bet a bunch. Bunch, bunch, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so I'd uh, snag a non-alcoholic beer every once in a while. Ooh. Uh, what kind? Remember? Oh, duels. Oh, duels. That's like the only oh, kind. Duels. Is there any other kind. Of? And there was caliber with a K. Ooh. Um, but yeah, I guarantee you it was, it was Budweiser, Bud Light. Montana is always a big, big, uh, Bud Light state. I remember, uh, Keystone Ice. Yeah. Had that? Yeah. That I remember that coming in. I remember, shit. then I remember everybody getting all excited about Ice House because it Ice had House, like a higher yeah. percentage of beer. Yeah. You, uh, who was the poet that wrote, uh, Jabberwocky? Oh shit. It's not E.E. E. Cummings now. No. No. Uh, Lewis Carroll? Yes. Yep. When I was in high school, you had to write, you had to take the same cadence and structure and write a different poem. And I remember, but you had to call like something, something wacky. So I wrote Bonfire Burning Wacky. And it was like a poem about burning bond, throwing on tires and whatnot, making big bonfires. 
set to the cadence of Jabberwock. And I was always jealous of a buddy of mine who came up with, he did his, it was old Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> I just, thought you were gonna. It was a poem about drinking old mud. I thought you were gonna regale us with <laughs> Jabberwocky. What about uh, what about for me? Yeah, I drank a lot of Keystone Ice growing up, but uh, I don't remember. I remember I used to get together at my friend's house and they would mix up all kind of different liquors and we'd drink it and throw up. Oh yeah, oh. combat juice. Yeah, who knows what was in there? Combat juice. Combat juice. <laughs> what about, okay, what about, I like I these. don't want my kids to do all this, man. They're going to do it, Steve. I know, I tell them they're going to do it. <laughs> you're going to tell you. I t- you're going to drink want, old Milwaukee I when you're 18, you son of a bitch. I don't want you to do these things, but I just, my dad I'm was staying, wide, I'm dude staying wide-eyed about this. I didn't <laughs> touch a drop alcohol until uh, the last week of my senior year of uh, high school. Really? Yeah. You feel like you were a good kid? No, like, he was Irish, you, and he knew he had the curse, man. The great curse. Oh, yeah, yeah there was a lot of, a lot of fami- familial uh, lessons there. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I had a, I had a uncle die of liver cirrhosis. Drank right. himself to death. Yeah. So yeah. we had that floating around in my, my family. But it was never – and it, I mean, it was when I was in my formative years that happened. But I feel like my parents were like, if you're going to do it, just do it here. I'd much rather you do it here. Go be running around doing some crazy shit somewhere else. So we just did it a lot there. Yeah, that's a good idea, really, because it's not the. Yeah, I don't know why we're talking about it so much. It's not the drinking that's the trouble. It's what comes with the drinking. Yep. So if your kid wants to sit on the couch, you can watch him drink and get all. It's then you're fine. So what you don't want is like driving around, mm-hmm. fornicating. <laughs> all right. First car, first car. Let's do that. I like this. Like this track we're on. Uh, my first car was a 1982 short box, two wheel drive, blue Chevy pickup, three on the tree, three six cylinder, oh. real shit truck. Oh, like uh, Chevy Love? No, 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 like no, no, no. It was like a half ton Chevy. Oh, gotcha. And I bought it for, I think, 400 bucks, cool. 600 bucks. Where did you get nice. that? 600 bucks. How'd you raise it? We always had jobs, man. I started working when I was 13. Ooh. I washed dishes at a summer camp for the damn campers were older than I was. <laughs> Mixing Kool Aid with a canoe paddle in a garbage can. <laughs> <laughs> Pull, scraping plates for hog slop. Yeah, started working early. And then. Uh, bought that. Then, then driving down the road, t- talking about drinking beer. Driving down a two track Manistee National Forest, hauling ass on a logging road, and my buddy's in the back, and then trying to hand a beer out to him out the little sliding window, and I got distracted by trying to get the un- thing unlatched. Bam! Into an oak tree. Oh, total it out. This dude named Matt Jones, who I voted for most likely to succeed, buys it for me for a hundred bucks. It's like two days later, some bitch drove it to school. He like fixed it himself. <laughs> and I, my God, was I pissed about that. Because <laughs> this guy, this guy's a mechanical He's genius, man. Three hundred dollar loss. These dudes, like these dudes back then, him and these other guys, they would like take, they would tear a truck down and put all the bolts in a five gallon bucket. I mean, everything from like the the sheet metal panels, everything just into a five gallon bucket. And then they would rebuild cars all the time and just pull, dump the bucket out 
and reassemble the thing. Not like taking <laughs> pictures. That shit is unique. Not like YouTube I mean, taking pictures, labeling. It'd just be like everything could go into springs and shit in the five-gallon bucket. <laughs> then they dump it out. Like, like some shit Jim Harrison might have wrote They dump it out and just put it back together again. As long as it's Mechanical in the bucket. Mechanical geniuses, man. So this guy, like I thought but this truck was totaled, and he very quickly has it up and running. <laughs> so you had to watch him driving around. Yeah, and then I went out and bought a, another... I didn't get a four-wheel drive to my third pickup. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, Steve here. I want to talk about something crucial for any outdoor enthusiast, which is battery reliability. I've got interstate batteries powering my gear. I have interstate batteries in my camper. I run an interstate battery in my boats. I use interstate batteries because the last thing I want is to be left powerless. Interstate batteries isn't just another battery company. They are outrageously dependable. In Alaska, the boat dealer that we use for getting stuff and repairs, he uses Interstate. Whether you're gearing up for hunting season, planning your next RV trip, or getting your boat ready, Interstate has the battery for all your needs. With over 150,000 dealer locations, the power you need is always nearby. Interstate batteries aren't just about power. It's about being prepared for any situation. Don't let a dead battery ruin your adventure. Head over to interstatebatteries.com, use their store locator, and equip yourself with a battery that won't let you down. When you're out in the wild or just on your daily commute, an interstate battery is your key to a dependable journey. Shit. Cal, first vehicle. All Chevs. All Chevs? 1983 Chevy Celebrity. Uh, that What's would a be celebrity? A, that's a <laughs> s- sedan. It's a uh, you bought a sedan. You should Google this shit. I yeah. googled it when he told me before. It's fucking hilarious. It is bench <laughs> bench seats front and back. Why'd all, you buy a sedan? All brown interior. Oh, uh, all brown exterior, and it had one of those uh, 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 speedometers that went like literally from the left hand side of the dash all the way to the right hand side of the dash. You know. Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember those. It took it a while to get across. Yeah. yeah. For the younger generation, that, that would be like a stick that moves like a, like a clock. Yeah, I forgot kinda, about you know? that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, 
And they kind of uh, looked like a clock too the way they laid it out. Yes. And uh, it was turned out to be just a phenomenal vehicle. And the trunk was like you could put 12 or so people in there. And uh, it was a really hilarious car to drive around uh, because it was it was actually front-wheel drive. And um, it took a while for the front of the vehicle to catch up to the steering wheel when you'd make a turn, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, being a kid, like, you're just not worried about anything. And as long as you had some speed up, you could drive that thing through all sorts of conditions, right? And you just, it really, you kind of <laughs> felt like you were just kind of tobogganing the vehicle around. And it was, uh, it was pretty funny. But uh, to answer your question, I got it uh, because uh, my dad decided uh, to take it as a partial payment for some legal work he did. So that one I did not actually pay for. And uh, Oh, you mean your old man did some legal work for someone else? Yeah. Oh, I thought it meant for you. Yeah, and then <laughs> I consequently had to pay for uh, – um, the series of things that just like kept going wrong with it. One time I was driving uh, back home and I had a buddy of mine uh, riding shotgun and the, the vehicle conked out on me again. He's like, man, I bet you're out of gas. I'm like, dude, I'm not out of gas and I'm poking around in there. Can't get it figured out. Have to get somebody else to tow me to a shop. And then they're like, yeah, man, you need a new fuel pump. And my buddy chimes in. He's like, I told you it was something to do with fuel. (laughs) (laughs) Ben, first vehicle. Man, uh, 1993 Summit Eagle Carvan. Periwinkle blue. I looked up the the, uh, picture of this also. Google image this vehicle. What's it called again? The Summit Eagle. I call it. We have, I believe called it. We called it the car van, because it looks like a car and a van had sex, and this came out as the baby, and it is, as it is a lot of utility in this in the in the Summit Eagle car van. You you saw it. I mean, what did you feel like the the ladies might enjoy that? I feel like it's a specialty maintenance vehicle for some sort of like <laughs> vacuum sales fleet. Yep. It had like a it, real boxy exterior, kind of had like a sedan, maybe had like a Chevy Celebrity front end. Yeah, almost. Give you that. Yeah, and a van back end. Picture and, a stubby hearse. Yeah, I used to take the seats out. I do get a lot of action going on back there. What kind of action? Well, you know, sometimes ladies. Oh, good. Other times, just equipment. Good for you. I'd put equipment back there. I lied to you because my I messed up. My first truck was the '82. Oh. Then I had to go back. After then, I then I went 82, 79, 84, 89. 89. All Chevs. No, the, the 89 was a Ford. Let me, I, I got another thing to tell you. You guys tell me if you think this is weird to do or not. When I was uh, coming up hunting, when I was like 16, we'd shoot a buck, and bucks were, they weren't rare. We'd shoot a buck every year, but it'd be a spike or a forky or something like that. We would, in an effort to use all the animal, cut the nut sack off, cut the ball sack off, dump, that, dump out the contents, remove the contents, and then stretch the sack over a Coke can. 
Okay. And, and at this time, I was for poker money. <laughs> Could be like they're meant to make a money bag. <laughs> well, at that time, I was shooting patch and round balls, so I put my round balls in the in the ball. Leave ball the hair stuff. on. Leave the hair on. So you got basically got a tan, you know, tan odds, tan scroll. scroll. Yeah. Eventually, as time went and you on, you put a little drawstring on there. I'm put guessing. a little drawstring on there. Yeah. So you, I'd feel real good. I get my patches out and I get my ball sack out with my, <laughs> my sack balls. full of balls. Dude, I love it. Yeah, you yeah, like man. it? So didn't do that. I carried this on till when I got the car van. So you could fit a a, a beer can. You could fit you fit a whitetail's ball sack over a beer can. No kidding. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. You should try it. You let it dry for a while. It dries into like a little cup. And you can do whatever you want. I can't believe I haven't done this. So, when I got the car van, I realized that these were kind of like, they kind of look like fuzzy dice. And so then, I took the two sacks, I tied them together like fuzzy dice, and I put them on the rear view mirror of the car van. And when ladies would get in the car van, or anyone, You'd they would say, say, see that? I'd say, see that. <laughs> 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 they'd say, what's that? I'd say, those are fuzzy dice. And I'd say, just tickle them. Tickle them. Tickle the underside of them. Just tickle them. And um, I would laugh. <laughs> I would laugh. <laughs> Eventually, they started to shed enough where my, my car van was full of ball sack hair, and it just got to be too much. That could, I had to remove them. Yeah. But for a, time, for a time, it was a big deal. And I would, one time, I did paint the inside of one green because our school colors, South Hagerstown High School, were green and white. And the exterior of a ball sack is white. So if you paint the interior green, you've got school color, ball sack, fuzzy dice. Good deal, Ben. That's impressive. That yeah. that doesn't strike me as um that doesn't strike me as weird. No? No. We'll see how that I plays. Could see, we'll I could see how it plays. I could see having done that. You have you would have done I, that. I had no idea about it, but I could see having done it. Because we did a lot of stuff, like, a lot of things like that. A lot of stuff with animal parts. Yeah, give us some examples so I feel a little bit more normal. Oh, you know, like guys would, you know, you'd uh, save your squirrel tails and do stuff with them. Um, grouse feet. Nope. You just kind of hang them on stuff. I remember getting in trouble for having stuff like that hanging in my locker. Because they do locker inspections. <laughs> I remember getting called down to the, in junior high, getting called down to the principal's office to account for why we, why I had bird feet hanging in my locker. They thought it was like some devil worshiper stuff or something, you know? <laughs> I don't know what they thought. And you were like, I just want to try to use, use them. Yeah, we'd neat. like stretch chipmunk skins yeah. out and dry chipmunk skins. They'd be like little playing cards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like a lot of stuff with animal parts, man, or like saving stuff. I feel like that's a good saving thing. Saving stuff off stuff. That's you know, a like good thing. My dad would butcher snap a turtle. He'd want to dry the head out and have the head to whatever carry around with <laughs> yeah. you. I don't know. My, no, but my kids are the same weird. way, that's man. My weird. kids are the same way. They want wings and feet and like heads off stuff. It, they, it just speaks to them. They it's like fascination. It. I think they see it like it's kind of beautiful. And they recognize from hanging out with me and their uncles and all the guys they're exposed to that people put a high value on these things. And so they, they feed off that. Like they yeah. understand that these are valuable things. And like in my garage, I have pull, you know, you got to pull the strings to get the shop lights on. And now one of the strings you got to pull, it's a, it's a mackerel's jaw. One of the ones you got to pull, it's a bunch of turkey spurs on a rope. So they just see this stuff around and they wind up liking it. It's like little talismans, you know. 
I, like I encourage it. I, I see how people could look and think it's gross or something, but I don't think that. I think it's like a it's 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 a uh, it's a way in which it's respectful, not disrespectful. Yeah. Well, to me, I, yeah, I look back on that on the ball sacks there, and I'm like, some people might think that's weird, but when I look back at that, it's the time I was me and my dad. All we thought about was deer. Yeah. That's all we did. But like my dad would take the deer legs, the deer hooves, and turn them, pack them, pack them in salt or borax or something, mm. and then he, then he'd run the, uh, he'd put them on a board, and drill in through the wood into the bone of the deer foot, and then you'd have that's where you'd hang your guns and bows. Was these deer feet sticking yeah. out at a ninety degree <laughs> upward angle? Just animal parts, man. They're all yeah, over the man. place. But I remember so like. Just you saying that, like the locker inspection thing. I had lots of stuff um, where you'd be like, why would you ever do this? And prior to some adult, at, you know, from outside of my circle asking me that, I had a what seemed to me a perfectly good explanation. Like, well, why wouldn't you keep this? But then it, I'd be like, oh, my God. Like... <laughs> I know I don't have an answer that's going to satisfy this person. (laughs) (laughs) I I can just tell by the way you're approaching this, you're not going to like my answer. Ma'am, I very much value this deer's dick. (laughs) That's why I've stretched out on this piece. Yeah, Yeah. we used to, there's a fur trapper that was real, a fur trapper and taxidermist. A lot of of taxidermists used to be fur trappers. Named Bob Ferris, who was always real helpful to us when we were young, and we'd sell him a little bit of fur. But he had a baculum collection you wouldn't believe. <laughs> yeah, Tell people awesome. what that is. It's dude. a pecker bone. Like people used to use uh people used to use whale baculums and walrus baculums as canes and sticks and stuff and drink stirs. Like I have baculums, like black bears have it's funny, is a big a big boar raccoon has a baculum just about as long as a black bear's baculum. Badgers. They got a big baculum. They got a big yeah. baculum. So, you know, you make little swizzle sticks, little drink stirs. I keep them in my medicine box. So I'll take them and there's an end on there and I'll, and I'll take white out and, let, and put a little spot of white out and I let it dry. And then I take a fine pen and I write like a date or location and then I let that dry. And then I put lacquer on it and let that dry and throw it in my medicine box. Yeah. I mean, I think those... Uh, when I was guiding a lot of black bears, um, you know, that, um, I, I, the baculum, it used to be like everybody would get the baculum, the, the penis bone off their bear. Um, and then that kind of went out of fashion, I guess. And, um, all the old codgers I'd hang around with, um, is where I picked it up from. And so when I started guiding a lot of black bears, um, I'd always be like, hey, do you want your... And people would be like, no! Well, should I? <laughs> and <laughs> no, no one again? Yeah. What's and, that? What is it? And so I'd boil it out and uh, and give it to them. And, and I'm like, well, yeah. I mean, this is the only, like, portable part of your black bear. You know, like, that's a good enough reason to pack it around. I'm like, you could... If you wanted to, you could cut it in half and 
put it on your keychain or something. But why? Why you think that is? That there's certain animals that have certain little totems, right? Elk ivory. Elk ivory. I was just thinking about elk ivory. Turkey, turkey spurs kind of fall in, under in, that. In the old days, uh, I don't. I don't have any personal familiarity with this, but I understand that it's true. Is the old days when you caught a big tarp and you'd pluck a scale. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that. I have turkey feet in just a laundry list of rental houses and crash pads from my younger years. Because <laughs> that was one of those things. Like, I'd always That's be nice like, quote. man, turkey feet. These things are so cool. Dinosaurs. Yeah, man. And then I'd throw them on the dashboard of my truck, and then I'd, like, stuff them, you know, like, on a windowsill or in a garage Oh, like every, on the wall or something. Every I'll, time I clear a yeah. freezer out, if I'm moving or something, I'll find like a turkey wing or something, and I know that I sometimes I'll write it on there like for wing bone call or yeah. whatever. And a lot of times I never get to it, but I have the intention of of doing those types of things. The only thing I do with turkeys, the only thing I keep off them now is I take the spur and and take a hacksaw and cut above and below the spur. Yeah, you get a little loop, and then you got that, and then the marrow you push the marrow out of there and so you got a hollow birds have hollow bones so you yep. got a hollow bone and it's a spur loop and you throw it on a rope keep them and i don't care how many turkeys you kill you're not going to wind up too many of those because they're, they're pretty compact <laughs> did you ever wear that as a necklace you know i haven't my kids like to do it and then i had uh i had i killed a turkey one time i had real nice real uh it's kind of like beautiful spurs and i had them i took them to a jeweler the same jeweler where i bought my wife's uh engagement and wedding rings from took them to a jeweler and had the jeweler set those spurs in the kind of setting like picture like a person that wears like a crystal mm-hmm. like a like a hippie kind of crystal you know that little metal the little metal cup. top it's yeah, like a little yeah. metal cup that kind of clasps mm-hmm. the the crystal rod i had the turkey spurs set in that but the crystal folk it'd be like a uh, eagle talon holding the crystal right yeah i'm thinking of a different kind of crystal folk okay it's like a little metal cup yep it's like yeah it's like just a attachment that, that, that pinches so yeah. i had the spurs yeah. set in those and my wife wears them now and then and i really like it now i encourage her to wear them and um she'll generally wear them to places where people might be like hey that's cool and not like what the hell is that right <laughs> well yeah i mean you Steve, you talk a lot about your love for, you know, pioneers and Davy Crockett and all those boys. Do you feel like some of that's rubbed off on you? Yeah. Do you want to have that connection? Yeah. People uh, adorn. It's all stuff. Like, you go look at wardrobes, costumes from the Plains tribes, everyone, man. I mean, it's just like, yeah, decorate your. I don't wear jewelry, right? But, but. I like that stuff because, like, you decorate your home and decorate your body with animal parts, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, like, it, it, to me, it doesn't. It, like, I can see that people would look and think it's creepy or something, but to me, it's just like I said. It just to me, it's um just to have that stuff around uh, yeah. feels good. It's just one of the many super complex things that we do. That yeah. So and, I, I, and I like my kids to be exposed to it. Yeah. A friend of mine was uh, telling me, uh, relaying to me his trials and tribulations circling around purchasing a uh, 
engagement wedding ring scenario for for his gal and uh talk about shit that i just had had no clue existed <laughs> and uh a person like uh apparently like there's a, a thing out there that exists where you it is expected that you uh put aside like x percentage of yep. your pay is supposed yep. to be well, what? Like you, what you, you spend on a wedding yeah. ring? There's, I can't remember what's the percentage. Like 15, no, fifteen percent or something. I can't remember for how much period of time. Just whatever your annual salary is, like a percentage of your salary. Like you're tithing to the church, but it's a, but it's for a wedding ring. <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah. the expectation is you'll spend this much money on the ring based on how much you make. Is that right? Yeah, man. Dude, I didn't know about. I that. don't think it's right at all. No, I think it's majorly screwed up, but. Uh, I don't believe that anybody actually pays attention to that. Dude, I don't know. There's some pretty traditional folk. I've never heard anybody saying, hey, check this out. You know, it's an $8,000 ring. That's 15%. But also then to find something like unique in things, and I'm like, man, I just don't have the mental capacity for things So, I mean, some guy's supposed to be like, okay, I make 50 grand a year. Right. I need to spend. So, let's say it's like 5%. I need to spend 15% of that on a wedding ring? (laughs) Yeah. Yep. I don't yeah. know what the numbers are. Somebody can tell us what they are. But that's, that's hilarious. It's a thing so, that people do. Yeah. Something you happens. Ask, well, uh, you know, Daniel Boone or Davy Crockett, like his appealing, <laughs> his opinion on what's ridiculous, like the in vogue fashion. Yeah, but those guys had long braided hair. Yeah. <laughs> Meaning they had long braided hair. They had more uh, plated. The long plated hair. I think Steve might be chiding you about your hair situation. No, I'm just saying they might look at stuff we do and think it's squirrely, but you look at them like, dude, why don't you just cut your hair? Why don't you just have a butch? Why do you have a long? Why do you have long <laughs> plated hair? Wouldn't it be easier to have a butch? Oh, just especially man, especially yeah. the upkeep. Exactly. They would oil it with bear oil. Man, well, they had like things they would there were like, and I, I'm not like a, I'm not a Davy Crockett guy, at all, and I know maybe you know I know those guys get lumped together, but just very different people, different times, yes. different people. Crockett's interesting, oh, yeah, yeah, he's interesting. I made dude. that mistake, interesting yeah. dude, but he's no Daniel Boone. But um, yes, let me rewind. I meant to say Daniel fucking Boone, not <laughs> Davy Crockett. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know why I said that? You know hair, why I said man. that's your song. Your song got me. Oh, Yanni Chimani? Yeah. Yanni Chimani. <laughs> King of the Wobble. Uh, oh, anyways, like maybe I'm taking your point The wrong, fashion. But I feel like you were going to say that like Boone would be like, what has gotten into these people? Yes, absolutely. Of course he would. Yeah, but they did strange stuff too. They did. They did. What was the... the I just had what was the the character in um, Jeremiah Johnson who had the shaved head, so no Indian. Del Gu. Del Gu. Yeah, and then he reverts there at the end, right? Yeah. Or he, do I have that bit mixed no, up? No, that's right. That he kept his hair shaved because it's because no one would want to people wouldn't want to scalp him. Yeah. <laughs> but then later he grows his hair out. Del Gu. Okay. Next one. Okay. Transition. First rifle. I like the way we're going. Oh. Yeah. Well, it's complicated. First one that I owned outright. 
I want to say the first one you owned outright is probably your first rifle. The first rifle I owned outright, my, my old man, one of my mentors as a child was a man by the name of Eugene Groders. And my brother Danny uh, very graciously named his own son Eugene. Um, Eugene Groders was a was a the avid outdoorsman. And he believed in having a gun for every year he'd been alive on earth. And he got to be quite old. And he kept all these guns in a rack in the ceiling. And at some point in time, he realized that he had more. He was like, whatever the hell he was, he's <laughs> 78, and realized there's 79 of them up there, and pulled down and gave to me a Model 94 lever action Ooh. 32 oh. special. Trapper gun, trapper gun, yeah. and it's a Michigan man's gun. There, that, you know, I sold, I stupidly sold that to, uh, I stupidly sold that to a guy that sold wood stoves and used guns. Um, so Eugene Groders pulled his gun down and gave it to me, and it had a peep sight. Then it had a reducer you could screw into the peep sight, and and I shot first bunch of deer I shot, I shot with that lever action shooting a peep sight. Yeah, and then I got all onto the bolt action. Ooh, bandwagon and and then it, like everybody you know you wanted a 30 out six bolt action um if you were from where i was from and and and, and yeah i went down and sold that thing for 300 bucks man i got i just know i got screwed wow you got a lot of like uh that shocks me about you i don't i don't see as that type of guy you're like trading up i was on, always on selling like i was that. always selling guns man yeah you had it with your car because it was like you were selling it just to get money to get a different one. Right. Like I remember wanting a, like 22, I wanted a 22 mag real bad and had to sell some of my stuff to get a 22 mag. And I wanted a Savage Trapper, like what, 24C or whatever. Uh-huh. The 22, 20 gauge, like 22 long, 20 gauge thing. And yeah. needing to sell whatever I had to go get that. Um, all just like really low end things. But that gun, I really should have hung on to that thing, that lever action rifle. Eugene. You know, Eugene Groders. And the thing, too, is he gave he gave it to me, and then I, it was just a really bad thing to do to sell it. And to be like, to, to prove your proficiency, I remember he'd march out across the yard, or my dad, and they'd set a full gallon jug of water out, whatever, 65, 75 yards. If you could hit that jug of water, you're ready to hunt, man. <laughs> <laughs> if you could poke a hole and drain it. If you could hit a, ga- a gallon <laughs> milk jug of water, it's like, let's go. You can do it. Cal, what I got? love it. What you got? Uh, Ruger 10-22, man. Yeah, boy. Yeah. Uh, oh, I didn't know we're... Uh, well, yeah. I mean, what, I you know what I mean. Gun guns. We can go yeah. back. We can go back. We can come back. The, I, I got a hunt with a series of rifles long prior to ever actually owning one. Yeah, when, how old were you when you, when you owned it? Well, I had the Ruger 10-22 at like you know, 12 or something like that. Yeah, but, that might not count. Uh, I, like, I like where Steve's going with it. But, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't own my own deer rifle until sophomore year of high school. Because you just shot family guns. Yeah. yeah. You know. Most guys. That's that was the most thing. Like, that's just kind of how everybody did. Like, I don't know that yeah. my brothers, like, actually had one. People would have, uh, you know what we were real big on, too, is uh, those look-through 
over under scope mount <laughs> where you could have your yeah, iron sights. You your iron sights. Because you need your iron thing. sights for deer drives yep. and shit, you know, yep. shooting buckshot or whatever. You need iron sights, <laughs> not buckshot, but and we all believe it. like we all believe that they're like brush guns, you know. Yeah. So you had your iron sights and over, and like they're made out of like plastic, and then you can still have like <laughs> a scope over the top of them. Oh, what a terrible setup! Just funny, oh, and I, and I remember God. the first guy I really like hunted with that had like an actual, you know, like a bolt. He had a Seiko. I was, I was some you know a relative he comes out with like a seiko with a nikon scope on it and just being like it was like a work of art <laughs> just be like holy smokes you know and like these guns that could like shoot groups and stuff you know i remember thinking like just being blown away by that he could hit, yeah. he could hit the milk jug three times yeah right. if a deer was all the way across the field you could still <laughs> shoot at it you, know? <laughs> you didn't need to be like ah, no, i got it ah uh. I started hunting with a. I didn't own this, but I started hunting with a Hawking 50 cal. That's that goes back to my patch and round ball uh, situation. But then upgraded quickly to uh, what was my first rifle? Savage 110 243, bold action, one of them fancy, fancy. So you guys were shooting 243s at deer. Yep, yep. I don't know if that was prescribed. I I was 12, 13 at the time, somewhere in there. Yeah, and wasn't a very big fella. And so I think that was it. Was the caliber choice was more about the recoil than it was gotcha. anything else. But it was quickly went to thirty out six. I think thirty out six was was eighty percent of what anybody was shooting in the woods. It took deer hunting by storm. Yeah, yeah. Everybody like that had to shoot some old gun had a thirty thirty, and anyone that bought a new one would buy a thirty out six. Thirty out six. I remember vividly like I wanted a thirty thirty really bad, and I had like this kind of brush gun thought because i was gonna go hunt where nobody else was hunting anyway you know which is like get get in there amongst them in the timber um and uh i used to just torment freaking gun buyers or you know the the gun counter people at a couple of shops in missoula and uh i have no clue what i was doing because it's not like i had any money right but i'd be like yeah and i just have this vivid conversation or vivid memory of this conversation in my head about going in and talking to this guy and be like well this is what i'm you know you know those big aspen patches on like the outside of a shoto or augusta like you know i like to you know go get in there and hunt and hunt the deer in their beds and stuff quarters and i just knew he was like gonna be like yeah man 30 30 because that's what i wanted right was a third lever action thirty thirty, and I think specifically because of like Jimmy Stewart and you know the the Western yeah. Winchester seventy three. Oh yeah, and uh, and uh, or Winchester seventy Winchester seventy three, right or seventy six? Seventy model ninety. The one I had, I feel like I could be messing up. But I think it was model ninety four. I'm gonna mess. Model ninety four. Anyway, right. Winchester lever. And the dude's like a lever action. Yeah, lever action. And he goes to like the consignment side of things, and here's like like big pronounced iron sights, 30-06, which now, sitting where I am now, I'm like, yes, that is a much more appropriate gun than than uh, what I was after, but I was just like crushed. I'm like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> I know what I want, and I want you to tell me I want it. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So funny. I think we ought to. Uh, we got this first thing can be 
can be tiresome, but we should probably say first. Let's let's end the first thing with uh, first thing you killed. Oh, I have no idea. Chipmunks, probably. First, first game animal, like real squirrels. Mess so squirrels. yeah, it would have been like, you know, I'm sure like chipmunks were just little because we'd just hunt with BB guns, you know, and we'd go out and hunt chipmunks because chipmunks were regarded in my area at least they were regarded as very destructive. Yeah. Um, and you could even like like the neighbors would pay out money on them. Lots of people pay out money on chipmunks. But we just hunt them in the woods too, you know. But like it'd be better case you'd have a deal where you'd get a couple bucks a piece from someone to get chipmunks out of their garden or whatever. Yep. And then um we had a lot of squirrels, so we hunted squirrels and then and then um and then a lot of trapping for fur bears. And then from squirrels and rabbits and grouse. I mean, that's pretty much that, you know, then up to deer. Yeah. But then I, I had, I, I would, you know, I killed my first deer when I was 13. And then probably didn't, I didn't kill another kind of big game animal for a decade after that. Really? No, just hunted deer. We just lived in Michigan and hunted yeah. deer. Yeah. That's what, that's the thing about, our industry and what we talk about, man. That's what most people do. That's what I did. I didn't travel off the East Coast to hunt until I was in the industry. It would have been laughable that when I was a kid that we would have gone out. Like, yeah. there's just no way in the world some, we were going to go out and hunt, like go out, drive out west to go hunt, no. which just wasn't going to happen. My old man, when I remember my old man going out on a you know, archery elk hunt, you know, but we were little. But no, it was just we hunted deer. And then, then my brothers, they, uh, Went up to, moved up to the Upper Peninsula, and they very quickly drew black bear tags up there and got a little bait station going, and they killed some bears, and then that was, then we were kind of off, off, off awesome, and running on, on crazy big game hunting. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, man, I was just like the absolute king of the Red Rider BB gun, mm. and I, I had two that I broke, like shot out, broke, and repaired myself, which was looking back on it was like somehow totally acceptable for me to be like gunsmithing BB guns. Um, and uh, so I had a lot of customization on my my Red Riders, but I shot, I mean, decimated small mammal <laughs> populations. And uh, my uh, uncle ran a feedlot and uh, you could go into that feedlot and just shoot mice and rats for as long as you could possibly stand it but i mean thousands and thousands and thousands of bbs over the course of a just you know a month um you know barn pigeons were like big big game um because they were always just like roosted up a little bit too high to like you'd hit them and then they'd kind of shake it off and be like whoa yeah. <laughs> and uh and then uh oh man my family the the folks in my family that hunted they were super into geese and that was it and you didn't hunt ducks and it was just geese um and this is like a traditional type of deal and, and uh i had a single shot break action 20 gauge hammer hammer gun and um i had uh 
you know, uh, several attempts at trying to get my first bird uh, with that thing. And, and finally, my uncle and I went up and jumped some ducks, and he stooped low enough to hunt ducks or go jump these ducks with me, and I shot a golden eye. And uh, it was one of those things where we jumped the birds, and I missed, and then somebody else knocked one down. They were trying to do that, and then out of the corner of my eye, I see this bird come zipping down the river, and I just swung going, and I just swung through (laughs) and pounded it and was like absolutely shocked, right? And I just, I remember to this day, like, everybody being like, oh, my God, great shot. And then they were like, it's goddamn cold night. <laughs> Jesus, girl, oh, girl. And it's all my uncle's buddies, right? And they're, oh, girl, oh. And them trying to feign excitement yeah. all the way <laughs> to, like, dropping me off back home and, yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, right. Shot the golden to, eye. Yeah, well, you know what? Then you yeah. learn how to cook, man. Oh, the, the monkles. I mean, uh, the come a long way. Yeah. Come a long, long way. That's probably good. You know, good, I think yeah. about kids, uh, how we used to hunt chipmunks real, real hard on chipmunks. And hard on other stuff. You read about indigenous cultures and the kids, um, they're the same way. Yeah, Francis Parkman's Oregon Trail. When he goes out, and he had, in, I think it was eighteen forty-six, he traveled with and spent time with the Oglala Sioux, and comments on um, how vicious the children are with their bows and arrows, shooting birds, and then killing the bird and hanging it up and shooting it more. <laughs> you know, and I was watching a documentary about Amerindians in South America, and um. Yeah, and the kids just like when they're learning to hunt, they just hunt everything. Yeah, and they hunt bugs, anything you'd shoot a blowgun at, right? They just like any little mammals, any little birds. Just hunt, 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 hunt. And uh, and I sometimes look back when we were kids and we were like that, and I'm like, ah, you know what, what was going on? But then it's like you're you're kind of like training for something. Yeah, you know. Well, what's it? It's got to be. And it scares some parents. Well, I would. I always think that. Is it this like I try to make it more than it is? I think like is it the curiosity with the natural world? But that's not what's going through your head when you're twelve year old popping chipmunks. It's fascination. You are you're fascinated with it, but it's domination, domination fascination. Yeah. And also, you want to like we just wanted to hunt. We want yeah. to be hunters. You just want to be outside. You want to be doing something. You want to achieve something. I mean, yeah. There's so a lot if you heard there. if you heard off in the woods, you heard a chipmunk going. Man, everybody grabbed a BB gun, ran on the woods to try to go find him. Yeah, crawl up on it. It's one. It, you wonder about that, like whether that's a, an advantage for somebody who starts hunting when they were a kid, because you have the like the gloves are kind of off, and you're a kid. You cow gets a BB gun, goes out and shoots shit. Nobody's talking about should he be doing that. Bringing morning doves home to your mom, thinking she's going to be all proud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you weren't even allowed to. You know, Michigan, you can't hunt morning doves. You know, we'd go out and try to get them off the power lines because they like to roost up on the power lines or perch up on there. And now I had my kid out. We were hunting squirrels, and there's crows bopping around the trees overhead, and he's all, you know, wants to shoot the crow. And I'm like, hey, what are you going to shoot the crow for? And um, he's like, well, we'll eat it. And I said, yeah, yeah, we could eat it, you know, but let's not shoot the crow. We're here waiting for squirrels. And I wouldn't let him shoot the crow. When I was a kid. He would have popped that crow in the dome. He shot the crow. And so I'm like, wonder, like, what I'm depriving him. I'm telling you. Like, there's something about – 
there was a fella, I can't remember his name and I won't, that wrote about the five stages of hunting. Yeah, uh, I'm familiar with this. Familiar with this? And the first one is just like something like, and I'll butcher this one as well, but it's like killing. Just killing is the yeah. first stage. Whether it's, you know, whether it has to do with power, like exerting some power over the world around you, or, you know, marksmanship, learning a skill, all the things that, that just kids are subconsciously doing that they probably should be allowed to do because it seems like a function of being, uh, uh, of coming up in the outside world, doesn't it? I mean, it's the yeah, Amerindians I mean, are doing it, we're doing it. Our kids probably won't be as free to do it as we were. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land. Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, Steve here. I want to talk about something crucial for any outdoor enthusiast, which is battery reliability. I've got interstate batteries powering my gear. I have interstate batteries in my camper. I run an interstate battery in my boats. I use interstate batteries because the last thing I want is to be left powerless. Interstate batteries isn't just another battery company. They are outrageously dependable. In Alaska, the boat dealer that we use for getting stuff and repairs, he uses interstate whether you're gearing up for hunting season, planning your next RV trip, or getting your boat ready, Interstate has the battery for all your needs. With over 150,000 dealer locations, the power you need is always nearby. Interstate batteries aren't just about power. It's about being prepared for any situation. Don't let a dead battery ruin your adventure. Head over to interstatebatteries.com. Use their store locator and equip yourself with a battery that won't let you down. When you're out in the wild or just on your daily commute, an interstate battery is your key to a dependable journey. Yeah, I mean, my my brothers, I mean, they were right there in it with me, and they were hardcore chipmunk hunters, and they grew up to become ecologists. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that everyone that kills chipmunks becomes an ecologist. <laughs> if you want your kid to become an ecologist, get him out there. There'd it. be too many ecologists. Um but there's no correlation between that activity and some kind of like wanton poaching later on. I thought a lot different of it when I realized that when I started to see references to it with with 
people from a long time ago. Yeah. Hunting cultures, hunter-gatherer groups whose children, um, and this happens in the Kalahari, the Amazon, the Great Plains, where these hunter-gatherer groups or nomadic hunters, their little kids, the little boys particularly, are just are expected to like learn their craft yeah at a young age that uh book aster that uh yep. friend of yours penned uh, they have a description of uh getting um kind of tagging in falling in with a group uh shoshone and um one of the uh groups that they're following there's a two-year-old kid uh tied onto a horse and these uh you know white dudes are who are the toughest sons of bitches that may have ever walked the planet according to this book man um they just being so blown away by how you could tie a kid onto a horse to have him learn how to ride. But that was like, you look at the uh, mortality rates, of uh, people in general, and then people in those, uh, plains tribes and then kids in those plane tribes. Like it was like, man, sink or swim. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of hunters nowadays that's that are, you know, or you know, what are we calling them? Adult onset hunters that don't get the opportunity to, to kind of shirk the intellectual conundrums that we've got going. Yeah, they got to dive right in with they all get, the heady stuff. Yeah, they got to get that heady stuff right on, right on the, at the beginning. But when you're a kid, you don't need that, man. When I was a kid, it was just about being with my dad. You know, it was just about being out there running around with him, and that was it. I mean, it wasn't. It was simple as could possibly be. There was nothing to it. Yeah, I think the uh, it's it's perfectly good and acceptable in my opinion just to grow up with it and like it and not ever feel the need to really like poke at it and think about it. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's nice to have the luxury to to, to do that and if you're the kind of person that tends to overthink a lot of stuff, then you wind up looking at this thing, you know, be it hunting, like look at it and be like you know what is this thing? What is it? About, what is it about it? You know, because yeah. you're talking to an overthinker right here. Yeah, so That's you're like you, you 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 accept that you like it, you accept that it means a lot to you, and then you get into this long job of sort of asking why, 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 why. Uh, not ever like, do I want to keep doing this? Because you know that's going to happen. But just you start, yeah, you start pondering the what is it. Does that have its place? I mean, or is that just spinning tires? Because you know you're going to continue to do it. You know that it's not that you won't one day come to a, oh, shit, Mm -hmm. I'm going to back off this. Well, for me, it it became tied to profession. Yeah. You know, where in, in some way you get paid to, in some way, well, I don't want to say you get paid. In some way, you find a way to to earn pay by thinking about <laughs> it, right, and kicking it around. Um, 
but yeah, I have a lot of I have a lot of friends that just don't feel the need to weigh it all out. There's millions. Yeah, I don't think I don't I, don't, I, don't, I don't, don't think less of them for it. There's millions of people who just want to hunt and have a good time. Yeah, and they don't sure. want to be told that it's wrong or it's right. They just want to hunt, do it the way they do it, and that's how it's always been, or that's how they've created it to be. And hell yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Don't beat anybody up for that. No, but I good. sit around looking at. At any point in my life, I look at what I was doing 10 years earlier, and you just get curious about it. Yeah. Like, hey, what the hell's going on there? What was I doing back then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why was I doing that? It's interesting. But it, it's it's something that people have been talking. I'm sure talking to you got you both about, but that have been writing in and, and asking me a lot about lately and around when we talk about ethics is, is killing shit and not eating it. Mm-hmm. Killing, uh, killing a critter, not eating, and, and it connects. It, it, it it's in my mind right now because it connects to being a kid. Because you're not eating. I mean, all the the animals you just named, yet you were popping with a BB gun or a twenty two or, wh- or whatever. I could count on one hand the number of chipmunks we ate. Yeah. Yep. When we were playing survival, we would eat them. <laughs> Maybe like <laughs> three times, right? But they're the, the, prairie dogs, Eastern yeah. Montana. You I tried to, you I ever tried eat cl- a prairie dog? I cleaned one no, up. No, I mean, didn't cook it. The amount the there's a lot of blood on these hands. <laughs> prairie dog blood. Prairie dog. Now were you still using a red rider for that or did you break out something? Oh, no, no. That's not a red rider. You could kill. You can nah, no you no. couldn't. No, you could. What was interesting no, is, is I had had a pretty quick escalation into higher calibers. Mm. You know, so you could reach out farther and then Eventually, I just went back to the 1022 because I just I had so. Eventually, I quick I found out that it really doesn't matter if you hit them, and uh, I had so much fun just arcing those little tiny bullets around. You know, they still poison prairie dogs. Oh, for sure. Oh yeah, my uncles. You know, they always had that big poison contraption on their four wheeler. Spread the pellets. It's it's. Literally like a big hopper with a, you know, probably a two-inch diameter tube that just goes straight down. And you can just drive that, drive your four-wheeler over the top of the prairie dog hole. You hit the button <laughs> or you pull the little slide thing, which is on a spring, and it drops a dose of poison down the hole. And then you just putter over to the next one. Yeah. Yeah. You got to think that uh, prairie dogs wasn't all they were killing. No, hell no, no, no. But you can. I mean, what's the yeah? What's the percentage of shit nowadays that uh, it's not shit of animals that you kill that you don't eat? I don't hunt anything I don't eat now, unless I wanted the fur off something. Yeah, now and then, but no, generally not because that you had to evolve into that. Correct. It's, I don't even think of it as an evolution. It's just like there's, um, you know, I used to trap stuff because like, I. To sell, you know, we'd fur trap to sell the hides and then we'd use the carcasses for bait, sell carcasses to sled dog people, just make like a little carcass dump to try to lure other stuff in, muskrats, whatnot. And I had a, I had a guy, you know, one guy that I grew up around that would want must, some number of muskrat hams, but not enough to keep up with how many I produced. Um, it was just like, that was like the thing of value on them. Now it's just, I just, it just doesn't. Mallard occasionally 
you get that uh, mallard that's got all the cysts in the uh, in the breast meat. Hmm. Not familiar. Like, yeah, big worms in the breast meat. I can't. I'm not eating that. Well, then you don't. Yeah, but that's not, the, that's not that's something. A, that's that's, that's not the intention that's, there. No, that's different. But no. the intention was to eat it. But yeah, right. but for me, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's just uh, I'd rather go. I like to go out and get the food. So that's a, a big part of the enjoyment for me is to go out and get food. So, and I only have you have, you have a certain number of hours in your life. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to go and do something, if I'm going to go fish, I'm going to go fish for a fish that I that we regard as good to eat. And if we're going to hunt, I like to go hunt for something that me and my family regard as good to eat because that's like right. a big part of it for me. So. It's just like what your it's your personal value system, or yeah. you know, I don't even want to put. The, I don't, it is a value system. It's a, it's a thing like that, but it's also it's just what makes sense. Yeah, it's like, that's just the sensical part. And I want to like go get stuff and bring it home, and especially with my kids, I want to go get stuff, and then we're going to go home and cook it. Yeah, but I mean, you've learned how to and and become an expert in how to cook a whole variety of things. Yeah, fish. Small game, big game, We eat game, all kinds whatever. of stuff, man. We eat pine squirrels. Goddamn cookbook with all this stuff in it. Um, so, yeah. so I Which can is have, now back in stock, by yeah, the way. Buy the Anywhere books are sold. <laughs> um, <laughs> Bam! <laughs> we have a little checkbox here on these podcasts where we <laughs> uh, advertise. Yeah, yeah, I have. We, You know, down here in, in – we cooked a coyote up down here in Mexico one time. Yeah. Didn't like it. I've never touched another one since. Yeah. Just, you know – cow i mean what's your you don't you you eat everything you're killing now right oh yeah man i mean it is uh, like maybe maybe i'd go help some some kids like with with shooting some prairie dogs but man it'd just be hard like my uh there's just no will there's just zero will anymore. But like, I mean, we I, had, I had to exterminate some some feral cats out at my mom's place the other day. Give your feral cat statistics. Two point six billion birds <laughs> a year. And this isn't feral cats. This is outdoor cats. Oh, here's the, yeah. Here's the thing though. Something like that. Or if I remember, I had a buddy that had a, you know, raccoon up in his barn mm-hmm. or feral cats that are getting in trouble. Or if some, if I had a friend who had a chicken coop, say, yeah. And Fox kept getting in there, but that, that's just, I, I don't think of that as, I don't think that's that, not, I don't think like, like hunt. hunting, you know what I mean? That's it's extermination. It's just, yeah. It's just different. It is. It is. But you know, it's not like, there's not a lot of enjoyment in that. Right. I'm like, yeah, ew. it's just more, more like dirty jobs done dirt cheap. Oh yeah. Like if there's a, if there's like a, feral cat cleaning house on a bunch of uh stuff yeah. and someone wanted it. i've yeah. done any feral cat work my mom raised these two ducks that somebody just people know she's got a, a real soft heart for animals and so she, shit just shows up at at their place and she raised these two domestic ducks and uh, it was just heartbroken that they weren't being real friendly to her for months and months and she built them like this she had like this grotto by the end of like 
<laughs> duck baths and uh, these giant uh, sunflowers, like hanging, overhanging sunflowers, and and uh, they were happy ducks. And just about the time they warmed up to her, the uh, cat explosion happened, and some cat ate both the ducks, killed both the ducks, and uh, that's that's when it was, uh, was open season on. Um, the barn cats, yeah. People have, have emailed in and, and messaged in about crows, about coyotes, about prairie dogs, which we've talked about. Seems like that comes in a lot. I don't know. if you, Do you get a lot in your inbox there at the meat eater? Shooting crows, no. Uh, no. If my kid shot a crow, I'd make him eat it, but he wouldn't think it was – but he, would, he wouldn't know. They eat so much stuff, he wouldn't think it was like – he wouldn't register it as a punishment. No. He'd just be like, great. Another thing to eat. Yeah, he's like, what else are we going to do with it, you know? <laughs> so, no, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have a problem with it. I mean, I didn't let him do it that one time just because I didn't want him to, I think I talked about this before. Because we were doing something different. We are like, waiting for a squirrel to come out. And I was teaching, like, let's stick with our plan here. Not just go willy-nilly. Shooting everything. Yeah, because we're, like, here for a purpose. We're waiting for something to show up. And if you do that, it's not going to show up. Um and, and we used to, yeah, we used to go out. I don't know why I have a double standard, man, because we used to go out and set a call out to get them, get crows. Shoot crows. Just for, just to get them. And, and, uh, but now, no, if my kid got a crow now, I'd make him cook it. And, I, yeah. and I'll probably, you know, I'll let him get a crow and he can see what it's like to eat it. You ever eaten a crow, cow? Nope. No desire to? I haven't. It's one of the handful of things I've never eaten. I, you know, Dad. <laughs> I'm, I'm that's certainly not. That's quote right there. <laughs> Not above it, not above it at all. I mean, same either. deal. You know, we were talking about wolves earlier. I have no uh, real desire to just go out and. Uh, I, I guess I do have an, a desire to go hunt wolves. I don't. I have a real hesitation to go hunt wolves, and and uh, if they don't taste good, you know, if I were to get a wolf, I'd damn sure be eating it. Stephenson, I've talked about this all the time. The Arctic explorer Stephenson said it was his favorite meat. He liked it better than sheep, better than caribou. Better than sheep. His favorite wild meat, better than Just mar- unreal. Was a wolf? So yeah, did- man, they ate everything. They ate whale tongue from everything from caribou to whale tongue, and he liked, uh, he liked wolf meat the most. Go out of his way to get wolves. I did some deep digging on the internet the other day to the bowels of the internet um, and found one published... That's in quotations. Uh, wolf recipe. Oh yeah. Um, and that was on some dude's blog that, and boy, he killed that wolf seven or eight times by the time he declared it edible. Yeah. I think more out of fear than anything else. There's no way it's going to taste bad. I, I can't imagine it does. It there, can't be I mean, ever. people have I mean, been eating wolves forever. I, yeah, and I would say stay tuned. That's something we're going to have to do. Yeah, no we're going to have to kill a wolf and eat it. I'd like to. I'd like to. You want to hunt wolves? Yeah, I yeah, I do. I find that people not not to do with that, but a, a thing that troubles me is is uh, I think some people become real sensitive about their practices, and it, and they take it like if you don't want to do something, they take it like you're making a value judgment on them. Yeah, exactly. This is like not you, a reflection upon you. Yeah, you'll go say, you know what? Like, there's all these other things to hunt, so I don't hunt that thing. I don't feel like hunting that thing. And they'll get hurt. It'll hurt their feelings <laughs> because they like to do it. I'm like, yeah, dude, 
Sure. Why does my not wanting to do it, why does that bother you that I don't want to do it? Yeah. I'm not like, I could name all kinds of stuff that, that I like to do that you don't do. I don't feel bad that you, I'm yeah. not hurt that you don't do them as well. Well, there's not, yeah. If, for, but there's a lot of people that are very sensitive, man. Well, that's just the thing that we do. There's just not one set of values. There's not one shared. There are shared values, but there's not one set of them that says, like, here are all the things that we do that are acceptable. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, though. Yeah, I, if absolutely. you're like, oh man, no, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't hunt prairie dogs. I don't, I don't hunt prairie dogs. You're too cause... good for that. Yeah, you're uh, better than me. I do. You better than me, Steve. And, and so. I would be like, uh, no, no. It's just that I'm doing something different. I guess <laughs> <laughs> that day. <laughs> I'll tell you, man. By the end of November, chasing mule deer and thigh high snow and sleeping on the ground. On the ground. You saw that uh, uh, ballad of uh, Buster Scruggs. <laughs> very good, very good. Yeah. That, well, it's a lot. It's you can't say it's very good because it's so many of them. Some of them are extremely good. Yes. This the um, the homesteaders, you know, yeah. the wagon train that train master keeps talking about his his partner that's kind of getting over the hill. He's like, imagine being that age and doing this job, sleeping on the ground on the ground sleeping on the ground that struck me but um there's a man who does a lot of sleeping on the ground yeah as a man who does plenty of sleeping on the ground but yeah man by the time end of november rolls around there's something very appealing about just going on half day hunts <laughs> like being able to return home yeah and uh not sleep on the ground so uh that's what my brother in alaska is he gets jealous of people living in the lower 48 because everything in Alaska is such a expedition. Oh, it's an expedition. It just is, man. He's like, just to be able to go out and like mess around. But it's not. It's like just a, everything's a big damn deal. Yeah. You feel like that's. Boats and yeah. trucks and you're gone 10 days. It's like, <laughs> you can't just go do something. Yeah. So anyway, by the, by the time, uh, you know, I'm I'm very to your earlier point. Like I'm doing other stuff. I'm very preoccupied. Um, it's just like us out here in Mexico. We all have javelina tags, and nobody we've all seen javelina, and nobody's chased a single one because we've been really focused on coos deer. Yeah, and I have wolf tags in my pocket, and I saw some wolves, and was just like, man, it's really gonna take me away from mule deer or elk right now um and so yeah by the time those other distractions are through getting around to the wolf thing like i i just don't uh have the drive for it i guess so yeah what you'd still you, you know uh, no i i i would like to make it happen yeah. I, I love the idea that you can call them i have called a few in over the years um and I, I I love talking to animals, man. That yeah. that's cool stuff. So, well, I think there's just something for me where we're always measuring each other. We're always measuring ourselves against each other as hunters. Mm-hmm. Always measuring. What do you do? How do you do that? You know, how fast do you go up the mountain? By well, height, I, mostly. <laughs> 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 but yeah, we always end up measuring. No matter what it is we're doing, we're always kind of whether we want to admit it or not, measuring ourselves. You know, whether it's based on the pursuit or based on how you do something or based on what you do or don't do, like we're always just measuring. Yeah, ourselves. sometimes it's just flat out who's bigger. Yeah. Yeah. 
Who's All is bigger? Time. All the time. We are measured. Well, we are. We didn't even tell people where we are. We're in Mexico, hey? Yes, we if are. Hear the, if you hear the gentle hum of a generator over the last hour and change. Yeah, off the grid in Mexico. We're off the grid with a generator in the back. We got a fire going here. It's real nice. Oak, man. Oak. Something to be Hard said wood there. around here. We've had a good week in Mexico. Phenomenal, man. Yes. Cal shot a deer today. Love, love this place. I, I um, was telling everybody today, I was like, man, I am damn proud of this buck and and very, very happy of this situation. But had I eaten this tag, I would have enjoyed every, every day of this hunt. Oh, I ate a tag. I got to leave tomorrow. And I sat on the ridgetop today and just enjoyed the sunset, man. That seems cliche, oh, that but I did it. was an amazing sunset. It was an amazing one. Seems like they come often around here, um, for sure. Mark Kenyon, who's here, um, described this hunt as a look and watch hunt as opposed to a spot and stalk hunt. Yeah. Um, I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, you look at a lot of bucks far off that are traveling fast, and you just kind of they come in and out of your life. <laughs> and you never see them again. <laughs> like a good car or first rifle. Um, well, check out the rest of the, the, the coverage from this stuff on um, – there's a television show called Mediator TV, but there's also a podcast called the Mediator Podcast. And that comes out every week too. Just check that out. But uh, that's all I got. You guys have any, we should do concluders since this is, uh, Steve Rinelli is here. We should conclude with a thought. Man, my concluding thought. Um, it's an auspicious time to be down on the border. Mm-hmm. Thanks, right. for, thanks for bringing that up because I feel like coming down here and not bringing it up. Yeah, you're looking so, like we're in Mexico and you're looking at mountains right in Arizona. Yeah. And uh, a lot of discussion about the border and, and uh, movement to and fro, right? It's just an interesting <laughs> time to be here. It's like you can't – I've commented on this a number of times where the landscape – you know, I've hunted coos deer in Arizona, not far from here. And I've hunted them here, and uh, the 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 same plants, you know, same ground, same animals, same wind blowing, but it, everything just a few miles south of that border, everything feels so different. Yeah, but it's not. It's like on the ground, and the birds, and it's just the same, right? These things don't know what side of that line they're on. Nope. But you can't help, you can't get away from this sense of uh, of viewing it as somehow other. And it just it impresses me with the way in which your geopolitical sensibility is very ingrained. Mm-hmm. You know? And you're like, when you're walking up a hill, you're not just walking up a hill. Some hell in You're Mexico. Up a hill in Mexico, <laughs> man. And that's a coos deer in Mexico. That's it's right. It's like you can't, it doesn't escape your head. And I keep wondering, like, why is it that you don't forget? Like, oh, I forgot that I'm in another country. It's very, I mean, we were talking about it today. It's very, when you cross the wall there in Aqua Prieta over, you're from Douglas, Arizona, over into Mexico, you can look through the steel bars and see the McDonald's golden arches. And you can look through the steel bars and see like the wall, kind of like the Walmart parking lot. Yeah, right there. Yeah. And um, it's like 
you know, you you have this understanding at that point that that these are this wall is more than just a barrier between two countries. It's like this. It makes it all the more real that these worlds are are what they are. You know, yeah, it's amazing. I don't need to describe what Occupy looks like, but it don't look like McDonald's and Walmart's no, at different. all. It's different. And then it, I guess you go through that transition, then you come out in like a purely natural landscape. Yeah. Like here you're in, you know, I was remarking to Cal today when he got that buck, it's like these are white-tailed deer. They're living outside of any real human influence. I mean, they're not they're not exploiting agriculture. No. Right? They're just, you know, they're just mountain deer. And um, I was saying to Cal, like, man, even if humans have never colonized the Western Hemisphere <laughs> – I feel like this buck would have been standing here right yeah. now. Like he doesn't know that anything's happened, you know, which yeah. is, you know, someone could shoot a lot of holes in that argument. But, um, but it's, yeah, it's still, it's like a deer in Mexico. But that's, you hit on a good point there, right? It's, it's us, man. We're the difference. Oh, yeah. You can't, you can't escape we, it. We are the difference because you can see that when you're in, in, you know, when you're in the town where that we've settled, you can look across and see the difference. When you remove the human interaction, it's the same damn thing. Exactly the same thing. Wall, no wall, whatever. Yeah. So that that it simplifies this this trip for me personally simplified and complicated the idea at the same time. Yeah, for sure. You it's know. been yeah, it's, it's interesting to it's interesting to be here right now and just kind of be able to sit and look at that line and think about it. Yeah. That's my concluder. Yep. Gal. Uh, Steve, I guess to your point, I did have like a very like interesting thought pop into my head when I was after um, our hunt this morning. I was like, how like there is a giant disparity in the amount of Americans that come to Mexico and the amount of Americans that come to Mexico and fire a rifle in Mexico. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like amongst a relatively, not saying that it's been done many, many, many times, but um, proportionally a very, very different groups. The uh, party crowd going to Cancun. Yeah. As uh, Rick Smith said, this is not the Margarita, Mexico. Yeah, I think very like, relatively <laughs> very few people cross down and, and hunt here in northern Sonoran. Yeah. How many people a year you think do that? Boy, I have no idea. I mean, I, I, there's, it's been long established. I would be surprised but, to hear this less than 1,000. Yeah. Yeah, I would be there. But, man, I love the country, and I love uh, this setup. Like the, I should definitely say thank you to uh, – uh, Jay Scott Outdoors, who this is the only uh, Colburn and Scott outfit like Jay Scott, Jay Scott, when the, as his his yeah he guides under Colburn and Scott, Colburn, Colburn and Scott, and Scott yeah. Outfitters, yeah, do it yourself hunt, like he arrange helps you arrange. This is actually hunt. a do it yourself hunt, like he sets you up for success, but. My God, man! Like the freedom you enjoy an extraordinary amount oh. of freedom on a <laughs> oh. humongous amount of land. Spoiled kids, man, yeah. and it's just—it's not that different. It's like you just—you just get to go hunt. Yeah, it's great. 
Ugh. I know. I know. Maybe maybe that's my concluder. Are you, your concluder is concluded? I'm concluded. Uh, I'm a, a notorious overthinker. But at the same time, I feel like, the, you know, running around here, like, unfettered, nobody telling us you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't shoot this buck, you can't shoot that buck. Like, you can just run on feeling. Just <laughs> running on feeling. Maybe that's the title. But you're just running on, like, whatever you feel like doing, whatever you want to do. And, um, you know, that's a feeling I like. Yeah. And I appreciate that feeling. And so when I get to do something like this and then, you know, call it my job at some level, man, fuck, am I grateful for that. God damn it, is that awesome. That Feeling the, grateful, man. You got My wife reminds me a lot about that stuff. I feel grateful. I really do. Like I complain it, about something. Yeah. First world problems. We have three beautiful, healthy children. I'm like, I know, but still. I know, but still. <laughs> 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 well, I, I can conclude by saying that I do feel, uh, I feel grateful to, to have been able to run around and, uh, see what we've seen and do what we've do. done this week and then any other time. And um, the meat eater crews together, man. That's, you know, last year Steve and I were here and there wasn't a meat eater incorporated. That's right, man. There was no director of conservation around Callahan at all. And uh, that's pretty cool. Very cool. Very cool. Sitting by Oak Fire. Yes, sir. Oak Fire. All right, boys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to turn this generator off. That's it. That's all. Episode number 45 in the books. Thank you to Ryan Callahan. Thank you to Stephen Rinella. Hey, it was only a year ago that when we started this podcast, Stephen Rinella and I did episode number one. We sat on a glass and tit in Sonora, Mexico, not far from where we recorded this podcast. So we've come a long way since then. Thank you all for following along. Thank you to Stephen and, and Ryan for being a big part of, of what we've done at the Hunting Collective and, and I'm grateful. As I said at the end of the podcast, I'm very grateful for what I'm able to do for a living. And I'm very grateful to anyone who cares to listen, follow along, and comment. Negative, positive, it doesn't matter. Um, it's, it, these are interactions that I care about. I care about them deeply. And I'm thankful for them. So I'll, that's what I'll say. And what else? What else? What else? What else? What else? Meat Eater live tour coming up, man. It's coming up. Not too long from now, we'll be in Sacramento. We will also be in Reno. I will be traveling to Boise later in the year with the team. It's going to be great. You're going to love it. So if you go to themeateater.com slash events, you'll find all the schedule there. and You can buy tickets. I'm sure there's some left to most of the events. The boys are also going to Michigan and uh, Dallas. And hopefully we'll be able to announce an Austin show pretty soon, which I will be attending as well. So go there, check that out, come and see us. Would love to hang with you, shake your hand, um, and do whatever <laughs> and do whatever you really want us to do uh, in those ways. What and there's more stuff. There's always more stuff. The Meat Eater newsletter is there. Go to the website, themeateater.com. Subscribe to that. You're going to get all our podcasts, all our content every week. It's awesome. And then when you're done with that, you're going to have a little bit of extra time, I'm sure. Maybe do this on a weekend when you've got nothing going on. You go over to the store on TheMeatEater.com. You poke around. There's lots of meat eater gear there. There's children's tees, all kinds of stuff for your kiddos. There's hunting collective hoodies. There's anti uh, 
bullshit, pro nuance shirts. There's all kinds of stuff over there. Hats, whatever you desire. Plus, you can buy First Light gear over there too, which is cool. Uh, so anyway, that's it for now. If you can do all those things, we'd be very grateful. Uh, until next time, we'll be joining you from Las Vegas, Nevada, hopefully with one Donnie Vincent. So check out Donnie if you don't know who he is. I'm sure you already do. But if you don't, check him out. And we'll see you then. Bye. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.